Hello and welcome. This is Emphasis Added, a podcast by the Houston Law Review, where we highlight legal issues, prominent lawyers, and obscure blue book rules. We are your hosts, Adri Langemeyer and Robert Cunningham. A special thanks to our sponsor, Gibson Dunn, a premier full-service international law firm with nearly 1,400 lawyers and 20 offices. Gibson Dunn recognizes that a law firm is, at its heart, a collection of individual attorneys, so they strive to hire the highest quality law students and attorneys, professionally and personally, and grant them the autonomy in shaping their own career path. Gibson Dunn attorneys bring a unique, diverse perspective to the firm's community, and the firm values a culture of respect and professionalism that promotes a dialogue with room for all viewpoints. Visit www.gibsondunn.com to learn more about Gibson Dunn's summer associate program and hiring opportunities. Paul Leitner is a UHLC alum and works in-house at Hewlett Packard Enterprise, where he is senior counsel for their North America channel and ecosystems. Paul talked with us about his struggle with on-campus interviews as a law student, how he landed his first job through networking, preparation, and luck, and how he positioned himself for a future role as an in-house attorney. Paul had so many great nuggets of wisdom and demystified what it means to be an in-house lawyer. Paul, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Glad to have you and uh, glad that you were able to make some time for us this morning. So we're going to dive right in and just start where I always like to start, which is at the beginning. Um, Where were you born and where did you grow up? Yeah, so I was born in a small town in central Texas called uh, Belton, Texas, kind of near Waco. My dad happened to be a district attorney in uh, in that area. So we grew up there. I didn't stay too long, pretty much moved to Houston shortly thereafter. And I've, I've grown up in Houston, lived here pretty much my whole life, except for uh, Houston and Austin for college. Okay. And so uh, your dad was a district attorney. Did that have any impact on your, your future career as a lawyer? Absolutely. You know, I, he, he was a district attorney when I was young and then had a private criminal practice, uh, criminal defense, um, while I was getting older and throughout high school and college. So I actually ended up spending some summers with him, sitting in his office, answering phones and doing little, little things, going to the courtroom with him sometimes and even the jail to visit clients. Wow. So it definitely impacted me and uh, made me interested. Uh, it, it's funny because I wasn't really interested until later on. It wasn't like something I knew I wanted to do from mm. an early age or anything. But he and my my stepmom both are criminal defense attorneys. So that, that definitely uh, informed me about what they do and impacted my, my career decision. Yeah. And I think it's interesting that um, the work you do now is maybe as far as you can get in the legal field from criminal defense work. Um, so I'm curious, you know, growing up around that, did that kind of inform you as far as maybe not wanting to do litigation? You didn't feel like it aligned with your personality or, or do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, you know, they do a lot of interesting things and there's even times now where I'm kind of look back and go, man, that would probably be more, (laughs) more fun at times. They deal with definitely different um, fact patterns that are, that you'd want to talk about and and people want to hear about and more just more fun. Uh, but there were a lot of things too that, you know, you hear about, you know, you might say fun because it's just, it's interesting and exciting, but at the same time you're dealing with fact patterns that, you know, some people might have a st- might not have a stomach for. And I was just like, I'm not sure I want to yeah. think about crimes and criminals all day. And, uh, it just ended up being that I, I wanted to go a different route. Yeah, no, I can absolutely relate to that. Um, I was a, 
mental health counselor before going to law school. And uh, there's something oh, yeah. heavy about being in, in a field where you have a lot of, you know, like you said, heavy fact patterns or, uh, you know, a lot of emotional tension. And so I can definitely see the draw of maybe not having that as your everyday career. Yeah. Um, so you mentioned that you spent a couple years in Austin and that was for college. So tell us a little bit about that. Where'd you go to undergrad and what did you study? Yeah, I went to the University of Texas at Austin and I studied uh, corporate communications, which is kind of a sub degree under the communications college. And uh, I really enjoyed it. It was a lot of public speaking, putting together presentations and uh, some, some organizational or management type courses. Um, but at the end of that, it, it, a lot of people flowed into like PR type positions, some corporate communications roles as well. But when I did my, uh, you know, the third year internship over the summer in a PR firm, I learned pretty quickly. Like I, I enjoyed the coursework. I always thought the, the theories behind the communication was really interesting. Learning how to present was great, but working in a PR company just wasn't, wasn't my cup of tea. And so that's when I actually started thinking more about law school. It had been in the back of my mind, but that's when I was like, oh, oh no, this isn't the type of challenge I like. And so I started looking into the LSAT and, and actually enjoyed studying for the LSAT to some extent, which is not, not something I'd want to admit <laughs> too much, but then uh, that's what kind of led me on to, to law school. Okay. And did you uh, go straight into law school after you finished college? Technically, yes. So I, I finished in four and a half years at University of Texas, and okay. that's partially because I switched my major. When I came in, mm -hmm. I was in um, natural sciences and studying a lot of science and math, and, and halfway through is when I decided to switch to communication. So I had to do an extra semester, and so I finished in December of 2002 and had about eight months, I guess, before law school would start up. So I had been doing some work throughout college in the admission center there, and they offered me a full-time role. So I actually just stayed in Austin and, and worked full-time at the University of Texas until it was time to come back for, for law school. But no no other real, you know, professional work between law school or college and law school. Yeah, but I bet it was still uh, probably nice to have that break from school to school. Um, I bet it can be challenging, you know, if you graduated in May and then start law school in August, that's not much of a breather in between. No, it wouldn't be. It wouldn't be. It was actually really nice. It was it was nice to kind of keep going, keep the momentum going at one extent, but to also get a nice break. Yeah, you're right. Mm -hmm. um, so you are an alum of the University of Houston Law Center. Uh, go Cougs. And <laughs> so when you got to law school, having grown up with your both your parents being, um, you know, district attorneys and in the legal field, was law school what you expected uh, you know, in a lot of ways, it was. I think I I tend to expect the worst, so I don't get surprised. And and there was definitely days where it was right in line with what I thought. I mean, I knew it was going to be a lot of reading. I knew it was going to be a lot of um, hard fact patterns and coursework to get over. So, I mean, that, that didn't surprise me too much. I mean, it was hard, absolutely. Mm -hmm. um, I think the biggest challenge that, that really surprised me was just the constant workload. You know, I mean, there you know, in college, you might be, oh, there's a midterm and then there's a final or there's a project here and there. But you could kind of coast sometimes in certain classes. Uh, <laughs> couldn't do that quite as much in law school, especially that first year. It was really just every week, you know, pages after pages, you'd, you'd read 50 pages and be like, I, I got this. And you go into class and you talk about <laughs> it for an hour. And they're like, that's great. Now you move on to your next 100 pages. And you're like, oh, okay. And you just kind of keep, keep chugging ahead and kind of keeping your endurance up, I think was 
was really hard. Yeah, and I definitely think that that's something that uh, any law student can um, recognize and sympathize with because we all feel it. Uh, and I think whether you're the top of your class or the bottom of your class, it's something that no law student can escape. So glad to hear that it was also a challenge for you. It makes me feel a little bit better. Um so on top of just the regular law school rigors, were you part of any extracurriculars or journals while you were at law school? Yeah, I was on the Houston Journal of International Law. I was an editor there and wrote a paper for that. Uh, and then you know, the one thing that stands out to me the most was I, it wasn't really an extracurricular, it was actually a course, but I did the mediation clinic mm. um, and I absolutely loved it. And uh, that was probably one of my, the highlights of my law school career, just because you know, you're in the middle of law school taking different courses, but this gave me the opportunity to throw on a suit and sit in a courtroom and then actually talk to people with real life issues and try to help them through it. And it just made me feel like I was almost a lawyer, you know, and it kind yeah. of kind of gave me, you know, the, the juice to kind of keep pushing forward and go, oh, my gosh, this is real, you know, and, and kind of help me deal with real issues. And, and they, you know, they train you to be a mediator and and I thought that was actually really helpful training just to be a lawyer as well, because they really try to help you like learn like the art of the question, you know, instead of inserting your opinion, ask a question to, to probe other people to come to a conclusion. And especially with mediation, um, it was, it was really interesting to see people come in, have this, you know, real life issue, you know, usually it was like landlord tenant since we were in JP court and, and they just, you know, when the first five seconds you're like, there's no way these people are getting to a conclusion. They hate each other. They're yelling. And then just having them talk it out and like asking probing questions. And you could, you end up determining that it's really a really small issue. And if they can just get past it, mm. uh, certain things and you can help them get past it without telling them what they need to do. Um, a lot of times they figured it out and it was, it was really interesting, you know, help them kind of write out a little contract, a mini contract at the end to kind of settle the issue. It was, really what got me into working with two groups to get to like a contractual relationship and kind of push me towards transactional law, really. Yeah, that sounds like it's something that would be really useful skills to have, whether you end up being a litigator or a transactional attorney or whatever you end up doing, um, being able to ask good questions and talk to two different sides of the table are definitely skills that that any lawyer should have. Um, so I can definitely see how that was a, a beneficial experience for you. So shout out mediation clinic. <laughs> Students should try that out. Absolutely. Um, so after law school or, or during your second or third year, were you uh, participating in the on-campus interviewing process or how did you end up finding a job out of law school? So I did do um, the OCI and just absolutely failed at it. <laughs> Didn't get any callbacks. I had quite a few interviews on campus. I, mean, I think it might've been up to 10 or something like that. Um, it just didn't get any traction. And after talking to a lot of friends and especially now looking back, I, I know a lot of it probably had to do with the fact that I didn't know what I wanted to do yet. And mm -hmm. it probably filtered through in the interviews. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, hearing people, one person come in with the same GPA and coursework and say, I love litigation and I want to do it. I can't wait to learn from you. And then the next person go, I, you know, which is what I was saying. I, I, I'll do litigation. I'll do transaction. I'm, I'm, I'm a hard worker. You know, it just doesn't sound the same. Yeah. <laughs> and even I would probably pick the person who, who's really into what we're hiring for. So right. 
Um, I know I did that and that was probably my big failing. And, and I think that was part of the challenge of law school as well, that, I mean, you really have already started your career when you've stepped in the door day one and you need to start thinking about what you want to do and, and educating yourself on what it is that those people do when they are in that kind of role. And I just, uh, it took me a little longer to do that, I think. And so uh, I think that hurt me at the OCI level, but I did land a role. Uh, my second year summer, I worked at the DA's office actually um, for a little bit for about half the summer. Um, and again, I found myself going, this isn't really what I expected. And, it, and I think in some cases you don't really know until you get in a role. Um, what it means and, and how it fits with your personality. Um, but I kept talking a lot to my friends who were also clerking other places. And one of them happened to be clerking at Baker Hughes in-house. And as I was just, you know, talking with them, you know, saying, you know, it wasn't really quite what I was looking for. They mentioned that one of their clerks had just left in the compliance group. And they said, well, look, you know, I know that they, they were thinking they might not be able to get someone midsummer, but they're interested. And so I, I happened to start talking to them and they offered me a role to go over there and I loved it. And so I, I ended up leaving halfway through the summer, which wasn't, <laughs> wasn't something I was proud of. And, and obviously that, that kind of burned some bridges, but I, I went over there halfway through and, and really glad I did. I love the group I worked with. I love the work we were doing. And they offered me to stay on throughout my full 3L year too. So I ended up working at Baker Hughes oh, wow. pretty much for a full year. Um, and it was great. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. Um, and, and like most companies, though, they didn't hire first years, uh, first year right. law, uh, lawyers. So had, that's when I had to start looking for something. But uh, okay. like like many. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah, no, I was uh, man. You said so many great things there that I wanted to just distill a couple things out that I was hearing. One, just thank you for sharing your failure, because I think that's so important for <laughs> law students to hear or, or attorneys at any level to hear that. Maybe it didn't go well the first time around. Maybe you didn't interview well the first time around, but that's not the end of things. Um, the other thing that I heard from you right there is that even as a law student, it's important to have a cohesive message when you're in that interviewing process, even if you're not really sure what you want to do, uh, kind of like what you were saying, it's you're more likely to be the hired candidate if you are the one that seems passionate about whatever it is that you're interviewing for. And not that that means you should be untruthful, um, right. just that you should have a cohesive story. Um, but I can definitely uh, sympathize with that because I was the same way one L year of just not really knowing, but feeling like it was a good bet to say, I'll do anything you want me to do. Just give me a job, please. Um, but that's yeah, not always the best pitch. Um, yeah. So from Baker Hughes, how did you end up, because you started at Hunt and Andrews Kurth, how did that job end up coming about? Yeah, that was complete and utter luck. I was, uh, like many law students, in Barbary, setting for the bar with no job. And, you know, obviously it's very stressful. You know, a lot of people ha had gotten received uh, full-time offers from where they clerked. And so I was sitting there and... Um, starting to think about what I needed to do. And I'd already been kind of thinking like I'd worked a lot on like FCPA type issues and compliance issues at Baker Hughes and really enjoyed it and thought, you know what, I'm going to try to keep that going. And maybe I'll look for firms or companies who, who want to beef up their, you know, lawyers who are practicing that. So I started trying to think of, you know, outside the box, what can I do? And I remember that I had read a ton of articles on FCPA, but one of them in particular stood out as being like, a great article I always use as my resource when I worked there. And it was written by someone at Andrews Kurth. 
And I knew one of my uh, fellow law students at the time had just accepted a job there. And so I just said, look, would you feel comfortable um, passing my name along to this person? Um, I love their article. I did a lot of work on this and that, and I really found it very helpful. And I just love to pick his brain about um, if he had any suggestions, if I wanted to practice this, what would he suggest I should go do out of law school? And so um, they put me in touch. They, they tried to make the connection. And I think it was productive because I wasn't going, I need a job. Can this person talk to me about a job? And mm -hmm. I didn't come in going, uh, this person's successful. Can they just give me some advice? You know, I, I came in saying, here's why I want to talk to you. And I read your stuff and, and I liked it and I thought it was great. So I think there was a little bit of, you know, backstory to it that I think caught some traction. And so I received a call and uh, they were like, yeah, we'd love to talk to you. Um, come in, you know, on Friday at nine and you'll have this many interviews and then you'll talk to have a lunch. And I was like, well, I, <laughs> I think you've made a mistake. I just was supposed to talk to so-and-so. And they're like, oh, no, no, no. They told us that they wanted to talk to you for the corporate securities role. And I was like, okay, I'm not, like, not going <laughs> to argue with you. Uh, and then I found out behind the scenes, they're like, well, yeah, we, they, they happen to have a few roles pop open. And I just happened to have sent it like right at the right time that they're like, we need to find some people to fill this gap. Usually they have second years come straight in. And I don't know if they didn't accept that year or what, or they needed more people, more, uh, mm -hmm. more hands, but it just hit it right at the right time. And they're like, come on in. And so I went in and interviewed. And even though I didn't have, you know, knowledge of what securities law even was at the time they took me on and so yeah so i got a job while i was studying for the bar which was fantastic it made it took a lot load off but that was kind of how i fell into it and it was um completely out of the blue and completely lucky well i feel like you really are giving us all of the nuggets of wisdom this morning um because i, I want to point out that it was absolutely luck and timing but there was a big part of that too, that was preparation and, and the way that you approached the firm, the fact that you leveraged, you know, a law school friend who had a connection there, but you weren't just like using them to get a foot in the door. You actually really wanted to talk to someone that you were interested in learning from. Um, right. So it's interesting just seeing in your story, you know, how, yeah, it's absolutely luck and timing sometimes, but preparation also has a big role in being ready for that luck when it comes. Um, sure. So you ended up at Hunt and Andrews Kurth and you were practicing in corporate securities. And so for many of us, myself included, I did not know what that was either until my first summer as an associate. So tell us a little bit about what type of work you were doing. Sure. So we worked on a lot of uh, initial public offerings, IPOs, and then also the following uh, periodic reports that, you know, once a company goes public, they are required to file um, you know, annual report, 10Ks, and then quarterly reports, and, and then the periodic ones after that. And so um, I worked with teams. Usually it'd be you know, at least one partner, a senior associate, and then me uh, staffed on a deal where we would uh, assist this private company going public. And it would sometimes be months worth of preparing this one document, a prospectus. And we'd go to what, what they call the printer. And we'd, and, and you know, a lot of ways I was, running edits back and forth and making sure edits flowed through a document. And, uh, you know, in some ways that first year is, you know, just glorified admin work. And, and, but to be honest, you end up looking at those documents so much that some of it seeps in <laughs> and you end up, do, you, you do end up learning quite a bit and they, they have a process. And I think that companies like our firms, like uh, Andrews Kurth and 
you know, the other big ones, they, they know what they're doing and they, they do it a lot and they have a process to, to give you little pieces and build up. So, um, you start very small, but at the same time, you're, you're staffed on these large, you know, multi-million dollar deals. And so it's really interesting work. It's definitely, you know, a, a lot of work. It was really busy at the time. So it was, it was just interesting, really threw me in the deep end and I had to learn a lot. I didn't have any background in, you know, finance or accounting. And a lot of those documents have a lot of that information in there. Mm -hmm. So I was, uh, <laughs> I was, you know, starting from scratch really, um, I remember even, uh, you know, the funny story was like one of the first meetings I was sitting in uh, where they kept talking about EBITDA, you know, and they were saying uh, EBITDA this and we want to have EBITDA do that. And and I just remember leaving, leaning over to the senior associate because I hadn't seen it written out yet. I just heard them talking about it. And I said, you know, I know the company's name is this, but who's who's EBITDA? And they, <laughs> I mean, they're, they just started laughing. They're like, you're kidding me, right? And I was like, oh, no, no. But Anyway, so that was my uh, my embarrassing moment. I, I learned to ask questions outside of meetings after that, awesome. something like that. But so I mean, that's how that's how <laughs> unprepared I was uh, in some extent. So yeah, um, that's fan such a fantastic story, though, because I do feel like uh, that's a lot of first year associate story, especially if you're going into corporate law. The learning curve is so steep, and so it makes sense that you know you have to start with really small tasks that just familiarize you with the documents you're seeing, like you said. Um, but yeah, I'm in the same boat, did not know what EBITDA stood for. I know what it stands for now, but I could not explain to you what it means or how it works, but I'm sure that I'll get there one of these days. Um, yeah. So you you had a couple years, your first few years as an associate, you were at Hunt and Andrews Kurth, you were uh, gathering this experience and kind of you know, learning more about corporate securities. And then you moved for a couple years to Looper Reed McGraw, um, which I think is now Gray Reed. Yes. So what, at this point, you know, you're a couple years into your uh, career. What were you starting to think about in terms of where you maybe wanted your career to go? Were you were you thinking those kinds of things at that point or where was your your head at? You know, to some extent, in the back of my mind, I, I think that there was always this thought that like, I want to go back in house at some point. And I, I'd enjoyed my time at Baker Hughes so much. Um, not that I didn't enjoy Andrews Kurth or um, Luba Reed, but I, I knew that that was probably a path for me um, that I was probably going to look into. And so when I got to Luba Reed, I was doing some securities work, but I really was starting to focus on trying to make myself as, as marketable as possible. And mm -hmm. so I, I really branched out and met a lot of the partners there who were doing other things and tried to get other types of work. Um, just try to be kind of an, you know, average show or whatever, the, whatever the phrase is for, you know, just a Jack of all trades, you know, yeah. uh, not average, you know, that'd be a bad one. Um, <laughs> but, but, uh, you know, getting employment agreements, getting master service agreements, uh, you know, the NDAs, the standard, and then also, you know, a little M&A and, and things like that. So, and, and that was a great place to do it because there were just a wide variety of types of transactions and types of clients at Looper Reed. So it was, it was a good opportunity to broaden the type of work I worked on. And I think that really led me into being better prepared mm -hmm. for going in-house, really. So it sounds like at that point you were really um, taking the opportunity to position yourself for the future that you were anticipating or, or wanting to move toward. 
um, which is great. Did you have any any mentors at that point that you were reaching out to or that were advising you as well? Uh, you know, absolutely. Um, I think my the earliest mentor I had was my boss, actually, from Baker Hughes. He, um, we, you know, we obviously had a good re- working relationship while I was there, but it wasn't really until after I left and got a job elsewhere that um, he and I just sort of kept in touch. And I remember him talking about he, he liked running and and I liked running. So at one point I was like, well, let's just let's get a run together. Maybe he asked to get a run together because we were both training for like the marathon or something. And we started running uh, and we probably ran together nearly every Saturday for seven to 10 years after that. Oh, wow. And he, yeah, we ended up creating this great friendship and, um, you know, kind of an informal mentoring relationship where I'm sure he, he probably wouldn't call it that, but I, I definitely bounced all sorts of ideas off of him and in hearing the things that he was going through and working through just kind of helped me get more perspective on, you know, long-term career goals. And so, yeah, I really, I had him, uh, was probably the main one. And then there were some great, uh, partners and, and senior attorneys at, at Looper Reed, obviously. And then once I had met Angie's Kurth that constantly just keeping in touch with and, you know, uh, getting advice on, you know, decisions and things like that. So absolutely. Yeah. That's awesome. Um, and, and so cool that you were able to develop that kind of casual mentorship. Uh, that's definitely not, you know, as common, I think when people think about how do I find a mentor and, I think it's a right. great approach to consider is just, you know, who's someone you can learn from that might also be a friend of yours. Um, so from Looper Reed, you moved to Toshiba in 2011, uh, started as counsel, worked your way up to senior counsel. Tell us a little bit about how this role came about um, and how you knew you were ready at that point to move in-house. Well, um, you know, it came about that I was just reached out to by a recruiter. There's, uh, you know, great recruiter networks and, uh, you know, a lot of great recruiters in Houston that have, have all sorts of connections. They know what's going on. So even if you check the job boards, they, they had, they know things that you don't. So, um, got in touch with one of them and they told me about this Toshiba role and, you know, just hearing about what, what it was, what you were, what we were doing just sounded very interesting. They were building a, a new group there basically, or they had built one and it was expanding and they really wanted someone to, uh, to kind of lead that group or, you know, handle that group. And so there was, there was a lot of, uh, going to be a lot of learning going on at, you know, Toshiba, it, you know, I thought at first when I heard them, I was like, Oh, they, you know, computers and TVs, but, yeah. uh, what I learned was it, even the one here, they didn't have anything to do with that, but there was all sorts of different um, affiliates and arms here in, in the U S that, that do all sorts of different things. And this one in Houston happened to do like industrial equipment, you know, batteries and drives. Mm-hmm. And, and the group I worked in was a power generation group and they worked on um, steam turbine generators in wow. these massive power plants. And so, um, and it was another th- like an eye opener for me because I remember, you know, earlier on looking at job postings and going, I don't know anything about steam turbine generators. They don't really sound all that fun. Like, why would I want to work on work that does that? And, you know, and it was, it was, I'm glad I did because, um, you know, the contracts are the contracts and, but, mm-hmm. you know, learning the business, uh, you know, there was actually, a, I, I learned a lot. I got to visit some power plants. It was actually really, really interesting. Um, but anyway, I'm not sure if I, I was answering the yeah. question there, but no. it popped up. I took it. Um, it was a generalist role, but focusing on contracts. And it was good because I had just done a, a, a wide variety of contracts and it really led me into that role. 
Yeah. Um, no, that you did totally answer the question. And I had the same um, realization when I Googled Toshiba because I automatically thought, you know, computer company, but they have a, a very broad business. And like you mentioned, you know, have a lot of different energy um, related practices as well. So I like, yeah. uh, you know, that you said that it it isn't exactly a sexy role to be uh, working on steam turbine generators right, but right. the fact of the matter is the contracts is the contract and uh, it's a great opportunity to learn the inside of a business which is really the difference that I see in in-house work versus private practice but I'm curious for you in that that first in-house role what were some of the main differences that you saw yeah so you know I think a big difference when you go in-house is that instead of getting the, you know, a random call from a client to ask you a question, um, your clients are usually down the hallway and, mm -hmm. and your door is open and they're popping in with random questions all throughout the day. And it's questions that they may not have asked. Uh, they probably wouldn't have asked outside counsel, but may not have asked the counsel if they hadn't seen them anyway. So I think you get um, a lot more, uh, you know, intricate, specific questions. You learn more about the business though, at the same time too, you're sit sitting there embedded with the business and um, and that's different. I feel like that, that was one thing I was missing from when I was in uh, law firms is that I would start helping negotiate a contract and really having to figure out behind the scenes, like just give me the gist of what you guys are selling, you know? And I never felt like, <clears throat> excuse me, I never felt like that was me doing my best. You know, I felt mm -hmm. like if I could have taken more time to learn what they were doing, I could be, advising them better. And so I really enjoyed working in a company and just every time you did a project, you were learning more and you're building on that knowledge. And I be, I felt like I could be a better legal counselor because I knew the product better mm -hmm. and I knew the services they were doing. Um, and so that was a big change and it was one that I enjoyed. Um, but at the same time, yeah, you do get just peppered with questions a lot and, and uh, which is good and bad, uh, not bad, but it's, it's harder to manage your day sometimes that way. So it's different. Yeah. Were there any other uh, challenges that you faced shifting from, you know, working in a, a big law firm to working for one client and one company? Um, well, that's a good question. You know, I was lucky that the clients I worked with and uh, the other like Seymour senior counsels I worked with were I actually enjoyed working with them all. But I will say if, you know, if you ended up working with someone whose personality maybe didn't click with yours or there was maybe some tension there, that could be more difficult since you're only supporting, you know, these clients or you have to continue mm. to support them other than, you know, if you were in a firm, you might be like, oh, glad that deal's done and you can move on. Um, so, I mean, you have to work with people a lot. And, and so uh, I was lucky I haven't had that problem, but I, I could see that potentially being a challenge. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Um, so you were at Toshiba for about four years and then you moved to a company called JGC America and you were senior counsel there. So what is JGC and what kind of work were you doing there? Was it similar to Toshiba or was it a different kind of opportunity for you? Um, it was somewhat similar, but at the same time, very different. They, mm -hmm they were very focused in doing engineering procurement and construction. Um, and this would be like work on big gas processing or petrochemical plants and those kind of projects. Um, I definitely worked on those types of contracts at um, Toshiba, you know, as Toshiba would be being one of the vendors or subcontractors providing 
um, this large heavy equipment into an overall project. And this time we I was working on the other side and we were doing the engineering work, like helping them plan out projects. So it's still the big construction engineering type projects, um, much smaller group here. Uh, again, I was working with a lot of a uh, very international company, which was, which was, I liked, it was very interesting. Um, you know, Toshiba had uh, a lot of uh, Japanese individuals here managing the company. So I worked with them there and, and J uh, JGC was the exact same way, which was good. Um, uh, you learn a lot that way. I feel like dealing with, you know, the different cultures and ways of work. Uh, but, uh, you know, I, I went over there just because of really some organizational changes. Uh, mm. Toshiba decided to kind of move around some of their U.S. affiliates. And, you know, if, if it was up to me, I probably would have still stayed there. But they, you know, my, my role would have had to move out of state. And so mm -hmm. that's why I think I was prompted me to look for another role here in Houston. Okay. And that's when I found that and moved over there. But um, still very gentlest role, doing a lot of the, the heavy engineering contracts. But at the same time, uh, training people as they got onboarding uh, with the code of conduct and, and then helping them review Okay. License agreements when we were taking on a new software license that we wanted to utilize and things like that. Okay. Was it ever challenging for you um, kind of understanding the different lingo that you would maybe come across, you know, working on an, an engineering type project versus what you were doing at Toshiba? Um, what was that learning curve like? Um, you know, absolutely. So yeah, every, every, industry you work in has has their own uh, acronyms that they want to use and it might be the same exact term that they just say it differently and and, and you know so I, I ended up started keeping a file on my desktop early on whereas if I heard a new term uh, or, or you know a new acronym I'd throw it on there and so keep it because I knew it would come up and that was a good way for me to keep track of that but absolutely uh, you know really having to go in with the engineers and, and you know, the su super sophisticated individuals and just being like, look, you need to talk to me like I'm a fifth grader. All right. <laughs> Back it up. What are we doing here? And, you know, if I just had that conversation early on with them and, and some of them were really great teachers and they helped me understand. And I think part of that too is a lawyer going out there and saying, look, I don't know this and not trying to claim they know everything and saying, will you please teach me? And then actually wanting to learn what they, what it is they're doing. Like, what kind of reports are we doing? Like, like how do they use them and when do we give it to them? And you know, how much do we support it after we give it to them? And, and just questions like that. Like, I think they enjoyed trying to teach a lawyer that those things. And, um, I think it, it bought some credibility with the team as well, to some extent. Mm -hmm. So, um, doing that early, uh, helped me kind of avoid too many scenarios where I was like, I don't even know what you're talking about right now. <laughs> Yeah, that sounds like uh, good advice to take and just, you know, be proactive with humility and uh, ask the questions you need to ask so you can do do your job well. Um, so from this role, you moved to Hewlett Packard Enterprise, which is where you're at now. And there you started as senior counsel. And now your role is senior counsel, North America channel and ecosystems. So that is a mouthful. Tell us what that means. Yeah, so the uh, North America Channel and Ecosystems role. That so with Channel, we're just we're referring to the fact that I support um, our channel partners in that program that we have. That and that that really is distributors and resellers. Um, in my first role, I started out supporting direct contract negotiations, and that was you know if large companies want to buy, you know, servers or other things like that, we would create a purchase sale contract. If we have services, we we'd sell directly to that customer. Now I'm working with 
um, customers who might want to purchase through large distributors. And so these distributors, mm -hmm. we try to encourage them to um, obviously support selling our equipment and our services. So we have all these programs that, that you know incentivize them to sell it. So it's funny because I moved from negotiating heavily negotiating contracts. And now I'm looking more at like program documentation and internal, um, you know, mapping of how programs work and how our partners are supposed to act, you know, and the things they're supposed to be doing to facilitate those sales the things they're not supposed to be doing so that we all stay in compliance with the law. And so it's just, uh, in some ways it's still, um, similar, you know, we're supporting sales, but it's, it's just very different and it's, it's rewarding to, you know, be pushed to be looking at different things. Now we're looking at a lot of antitrust issues and, uh, you know, still a lot of privacy issues. So it's just, it's been interesting. I mean, it's, I think 70% of HP's annual revenue is sold through our channel partners. Okay. And that's, you know, wow. 30, 30, 30 billion of total revenue. So, I mean, that's, that's a big that's chunk huge. of, yeah, it's a big chunk of sales. So it's a, it's a big business and, you know, one that I, again, it, before coming here, I didn't know much about it. I'd heard the term, but, um, you know, really getting another crash course on it. And it's been interesting. Um, that, that explains what the channel is and an ecosystem is, uh, another way to say like our alliance partners. Mm -hmm. And so that's, uh, you know, other, you know, like maybe software vendors that we partner with to <clears throat> perhaps it's, uh, you know, jointly, uh, look into how to combine our products or testing products together to make sure that they're optimized and they work well together mm -hmm. so that when they go to sell it to a customer, they can say, Oh, it works well on, the HPE, you know, blank machine. So okay. um, a lot of contracts like that. Yeah. So it's a lot of uh, inner working with companies, you know, partnering with them as opposed to, you know, selling or hard negotiating like that. It's, it's, it's interesting. Yeah. And, and one thing I'm picking up on is in all your roles, you know, ever since you started your legal career, but especially since you moved in house, it seems like you're constantly learning something new there's always a chance, it seems like, for you to be doing something completely different from maybe what you mastered in the past few years. Um, would you say that's true of, of being in-house? Absolutely. I mean, particularly at HPE, I mean, even just at my time here, it's been a constant learning, uh, uh, constant learning the entire time, not only just with, uh, you know, changing the sales model and moving into a new role, but our products are constantly changing, the things we're doing changing, and then the legal framework's changing. I mean, privacy, since I've been here, privacy has just blown up. The GDPR mm -hmm. um, over in Europe has come out, um, which, you know, created all sorts of obligations and rules. So, yeah, I mean, it's, you never really stop learning. And if you're, if you're hoping to just coast, I mean, that's, it's just a hard thing I think to do as a lawyer ever, and, um, and especially uh, in-house. So, uh, yeah, you hit, it on the, you hit it on the head. I mean, it's been constantly learning. Um, about products and about the law. Yeah, it sounds uh, a f like a fascinating learning process as well, being part of a, a global company like this. Um, so I kind of skipped over this jumping in, but what was it that actually led you to Hewlett Packard Enterprise? Was it another kind of similar thing where you uh, worked with a recruiter or did this come about in a different way? You know, this one was, uh, all had to do with friends in my network. And uh, I had a couple of friends, long-term friends. Uh, one of them actually was an old co uh, colleague at Toshiba who had gone there as well. And they just raved about it. And they, you know, they said, HP is a great place to work. This position opened up. I think you'd be great for it. You need to you know, apply. So that's why, I mean, you see, like I didn't stay at JGC very long, 
part of it was because this popped up and it was mm. one that I, you know, I had to talk to my mentors about, think about it really hard and, and it just made sense. And I'm glad I did it. Um, and it just, it ended up being a good fit. It's a much, much larger legal department. Um, and in some ways I do, I did enjoy the small legal department where you're doing more generalist roles and here you, you do end up falling more into a, a silo and you're focusing on your one thing, but, um, the amount of focus they put into growing the people in their legal department mm. and, and having people enjoy coming to work has been great. It's been a really pleasurable experience. Yeah, and that's something that's uh, pretty unique about HPE. Not a lot of companies uh, will hire law students right out of law school, but I know that HPE actually has its own clerkship program um, and that y'all come to our OCI at UH every year. So, um, and I know I'm jumping around a little bit, but can you tell us a little bit about that? Because that is, is super unique. Yeah, sure. So we do have a new attorney program and it starts with, you know, two L summers bringing in people and we have three groups that, that we bring them into and it's uh, the CSMNA, which is corporate securities and MA. And then the other two groups are litigation and IP. And mm -hmm. so if you want to practice that, those people, that's what the uh, law students can apply for and they come in and they really get a crash course in it and they, they can, they can get projects from groups outside of those groups, but they really focus on trying to get them a lot of great projects and a broad, broad experience within those, those topics. Um, and then after they're out, uh, they come and join us as first years and, um, you know, having worked closely with some of the CSMNA attorneys, I think there's a first year, second year, and a third year in the Houston mm -hmm. office with me. Um, having seen the things they do, I can tell you that it was very similar to the level of work that I was working on at Andrews Curth. I mean, mm -hmm. they are thrown into big projects, given a lot of responsibility to some extent, you know, even more responsibility I thought than I was getting in the firm. And so it was, it's, I think it's a really great experience for those people who are able to, to do it. Yeah. Well, and it sounds like, uh, you know, one of the reasons that it works so well for HPA be, HPE being able to do that program is because you have a pretty significant sized legal department. Um, right. And so there's a lot of people to learn from and, like you said, large projects to work on. Um, so just for the group that you're in right now, how, how large is your group or what does your team look like? Um, so my, my direct team right now is about three people. It's, it's actually fairly small, the channel, the channel and ecosystems team for North America. But it's, you know, it's kind of hard. So we, we have other North America teams that I'm on that supports all contracting that ends up being closer to 20 or 25. And then it, it just kind of keeps growing from there. It's, wow. uh, you know, you end up being kind of like pseudo on teams with multiple people. I mean, I can tell you, I, I'm on this North America team with three people, but there's, you know, another, another four maybe attorneys worldwide that also do channel that we end up working very closely together uh, all the time. And so, mm. um, yeah. So, I mean, three people, but at the same time, it, it's, it's, it's a much larger group than that. And because just based on who you support and how you interact. Yeah. And, and at this point in your career, do you still have uh, you know, business team popping into your office with random questions or is it more focused now? You know, uh, it's still the same way in, in that regard. I mean, it's all virtual now, even before COVID hit, um, doing a lot of stuff virtually and, and there weren't a lot of business groups I was supporting in the Houston office anyways. Mm -hmm. And even if they were, the office was so huge that I didn't even know it half the time that they were down the hall for me. So, so virtually, you know, getting pinged throughout the day with questions on Skype or things like that isn't uncommon. 
Um, and yeah, it's, it's one of those things where you just can get, get peppered with questions someday never get to the big items you're trying to look at. So it's, it's constantly, uh, you know, having to manage your day and, and be a really good, um, you know, good with your calendar to make sure that you're getting things done because yeah, it can't, it can't happen like that. You can get bogged down with just the things that pop up in a day mm -hmm. and not think of them more the long-term projects. Hmm. Yeah, it seems like you need to have a pretty top-notch organization skills to kind of stay on top of everything, which is probably true of all lawyers, but um, especially it seems like being in-house when you have so many things that could pop up. Um, so we have just a couple questions left, and, and one of them is, you know, mentorship has been an important part of your career from an early stage and also the network that you've built. So I'm curious how mentorship has changed as your career has grown. For example, you know, you've been mentored. Are you in a, a phase now where you're doing more mentoring um, or anything like that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, in the more like recent past, I've started seeing opportunities where I was like, oh, someone's asking this question. I think I can actually provide a little insight on it. And <clears throat> it takes some time to kind of come to that realization. I think that you're like, oh, I've actually, I've learned something here and I can bring a little bit of value back. So, um, you know, especially with like summer interns that come in, I, you know, I, I know how strange that that can be and how daunting it can, can sometimes be. So I make sure I, I can do what I can to help them with that process and answer questions and uh, just befriend them, you know, but then also moving into looking to where like knowing that there's common questions, as you know, we, I tried to connect with the university of Houston mm -hmm. this last year and, and uh, you know, we had so many people in uh, my, my Houston office at HPE that were interested in, you know, answering questions and talking to law students that we kind of created a big group where there's maybe eight or 10 of us that connected with eight or 10 law students. And we um, did some mentoring over this last year. And even um, we brought you guys up to the office and tried to give a little presentation over the different groups. Cause I mean, I just remember thinking, I don't know what CSMNA means. I don't really know what in-house litigators do, you know, I don't right. know you just farm everything out. And so we were hoping to, um, let you talk to a litigator, let you talk to a CSMNA person, let you mm -hmm. talk to an IP attorney and ask all your questions and, and, uh, and hopefully kind of take away some of that vagueness so that you can hopefully make a better decision about your career. And, uh, hopefully, hopefully that worked. <laughs> I think, I think, and I'll just say for our listeners, I got to participate in that program and it was fantastic. And, um, you know, part of my goal in talking to you today is to provide this information to, a broader audience, because I know there are a lot of law students, maybe even young attorneys who don't know what it means to be an in-house attorney or don't know what it means, you know, to work for HPE. What does that look like? And so I'm really glad we had the chance today to kind of pick your brain about that. So thank you. And we just have two final questions. Um, and, and one of them is, is there any advice you would give to current law students or young attorneys based on your experiences? Sure. Um, for law students, I would just say, start thinking about your career as early as possible. And, you know, and it doesn't have to be super in depth, but if you can start thinking about what you might want to practice and then reach out to people and just say, are you willing to talk with me? I don't even know what you do. And I'd love to learn a little bit about what you do. And <clears throat> there are a lot of lawyers out there who are going to be very willing to talk to you for 30 minutes to an hour and just tell you a little about, I mean, just ask very standard questions. Like, what do you like about your job? What do you do on a daily basis? So, <clears throat> excuse me, so that you can have a better idea of what's going on. Cause I mean, studying the contracts course in, you know, one L year 
doesn't prepare you for what it means to be a contract <laughs> yeah. attorney. So, uh, you know, I, I think if you can start being a little more proactive and thinking about things like that, just having conversations and asking questions early on to, to educate yourself, you'll be better off when it comes time to say, what do I want to practice? You know, when that question right. comes up in your interviews, you can say, well, you know, I, I, I talked to this or talked to this person and you, you can be a little more educated. So I think doing that early on is, is probably the best idea. That's great advice. Um, and our last question for every guest is whether you are pro Oxford comma or not, what are, what are your opinions there? <laughs> I can uh, admit that I've had more conversations about commas than <laughs> anyone should have, but I, I personally do not use the Oxford comma. Um, but I also usually don't care if it's not going to impact the sentence, uh, which I don't think it does in many cases. I, I usually leave it, but I'm not going to, a lot of things I've learned being announced too, is if you can keep the red, red lining out of a contract, it's going to make things go smoother. So okay. I, uh, I don't use it myself, but I'm not going to, this is probably not going to be something I hack out of a contract either. Yeah. I like that we are getting the insight from the in-house side of it. Cause it's, uh, it's always fun to hear just those, those different, uh, sides of the argument on the Oxford comma. Well, Paul, thank you so much for joining us today. I thought this was a fantastic conversation. Um, and we can't wait to share it with our listeners. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening. Emphasis Added is a podcast by the Houston Law Review. Production is possible because of generous support from the Houston Law Review Alumni Association. If you have thoughts on today's episode or suggestions for a future episode, email us at emphasisadded at houstonlawreview.org. Follow the Houston Law Review on Twitter and Instagram at HoustonLRev or find us on Facebook under the name Houston Law Review.